Do you think anybody could be freelance? We're a little bit at a disadvantage if we only earn money one way. You know, what is it that gets you to that like upper, upper echelon? We all know that there's a big difference between being good at what you do and being known for it. My current speaking rate is 25,000 for a keynote. This is Philip Van Nostrand, and you are listening to the Epic Freelance Life Podcast, how to make more money and live an epic freelance life. All right, welcome back to How to Live an Epic Freelance Life Podcast. I'm here with a good friend of mine, Dory Clark. Um, I've known Dory for, I want to say, three or four years now, probably four years, and uh, we met in a very interesting way, which We'll probably talk about later. But Dory, why don't you introduce yourself? All right, Phil. I'm really glad to be here. So I write business and career books. I teach for Duke University's Fuqua School of Business in Columbia. And mostly what I am interested in is helping people and companies figure out in a very crowded and noisy environment how they can get their best ideas heard. Ooh, that was such a good intro to yourself. <laughs> Thanks, man. Um, I can tell you've done this before. And uh, yeah, that's great. And I think, um, and you do a few other things too. So it'll be fun to like suss that out as we talk, right? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So um, I guess I'm going to jump straight to like my, my, my most curious question is, how do you make money, Dory? <laughs> <laughs> so my most recent book, which is called Entrepreneurial You, is mm-hmm. in many ways about this question. It's a, it's a book about how do you create multiple revenue streams in your business. And so one of the drums that I like to beat is that wherever possible, it is really useful for everybody to think about how to create multiple revenue streams because we're, we're a little bit at a disadvantage if we only earn money one way. Uh, That was something that I learned the hard way when I was uh, early in my career and I was a journalist and I got laid off. And so we often think, oh, you know, safe, one, you know, one paycheck, one, uh, you know, one secure thing. And of course, pretty much everybody who is listening to this and living or aspiring to live an epic freelance life understands what is fundamentally wrong with this, which is that the thing that seems perfectly safe is perfectly safe up until the minute it isn't, at which point it becomes incredibly risky. So yeah, yeah, you're just describing like millions of people's experiences during the coronavirus pandemic, basically. Exactly. And so what I've seen is that with many freelancers, you know, it's, it's better for sure, because in most cases, you don't just have one client, you have a multitude of clients. So you're hedging Mm -hmm. your risk in that way. But there's also a kind of hidden risk, which is that if you are doing the same type of thing for every client, then if that gets disrupted for some reason, that's also sort of an area of risk. And so what I like to suggest and what I do in my own business is to really think carefully about how can you expand both the audience that you serve and the types of things that you serve to, to them. Um, So specifically for me, that takes the form of executive coaching 
uh, consulting, which I define as being um, doing work at an organizational re- level rather than at an individual level. I make money from writing books. I do a lot with online courses, both ones that I create myself and that I partner with other entities for, like LinkedIn Learning. Mm-hmm. Um, I also run a mastermind, a paid mastermind. Uh, I, this has been one of the things that has cycled off during COVID, but I also used to do live in-person workshops. I do executive education teaching for business schools. I sometimes work with companies and do sponsorships. So mm. there's a, a wide variety of ways that I bring in revenue. That sounds incredibly busy, Dory. <laughs> It's it's busy. It's definitely yeah. busy, but it is not unmanageable in the sense that yeah. a distinction that I draw is that it's not doing 10 completely different things. You know, sure, if you sure. if you have things where you have different audiences and different skills, if it's like, "Oh, well, I'm a hang gliding instructor and I'm a novelist and I'm a lawyer," yeah. that's just completely different. This is really about taking some of the, the same things that I do, the same core IP sure. and just leveraging it in different ways. Yeah. So so would you say that there's like an umbrella, I don't know, mission statement for yourself or an umbrella um, offering that you have for the world that, that every all of these things fall under? I think in a broad sense, it mm-hmm. relates to what I was mentioning at the outset, oh, yeah. which is helping people or helping companies get their best ideas heard. Yeah, we all know right, that there's right. a big difference between being good at what you do and being known for it. And I have really spent a lot of time focusing in on the question of how one specifically becomes known for it. And so um, that's that's a, a separate skill set. And I, I help people figure that out. Helping people and companies get their ideas heard. I love it. It's such a succinct um, yeah, mission statement. It makes so much sense. Uh, so uh, one thing you didn't mention there, I guess, which you also used to do a lot. I know you used to speak pretty regularly. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, certainly that has uh, that has gone down during COVID because all the things I used to speak at, like conferences and uh, uh-huh. gatherings of companies, have uh, have gone virtual. So I, I've certainly been doing webinars and things like that, but it's sure. uh, a slower pace. But indeed, that was a a key part of my revenue for a number of years was doing yeah. keynote speaking. And and speaking is really like pretty lucrative, right? Like the the paycheck can be very good if you're kind of at the top tier of a speaking circuit, I would think. Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. I mean, uh, speaking rates, if you're just starting out and you're doing it locally, you know, certainly lots of people, myself included, do it for free in the beginning to get clients or to raise awareness. But, you know, eventually you can get 500 bucks, a thousand bucks. That's great. But once you start to develop a a so-called platform, once you start to get better known, Mm -hmm. which often involves having a book or other markers of credibility, um, you're definitely able to to raise your rates. And so currently, um, and Mm -hmm. (laughs) this was this was the case pre-COVID. I'm so excited uh, to hear this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, thank you. And hopefully we'll be, you know, getting back to live in-person things soon. I mean, in fact, I got an email yesterday about a gig in October, which they are hoping to have in person. They kind of put an asterisk on okay. it. They might convert to virtual, but the plan is to do it in person in October. And um, so we're going to move forward with that. But my current speaking rate is 25000 for a keynote. 
Yeah, that's amazing. And thank you for sharing real numbers, by the way. It's really hard to like pull that out of people sometimes on these conversations. Um, yeah, absolutely. I, I get very annoyed when people are not transparent. I feel yeah. like it often is um, kind of unfair and misleading. You know, like they, sure. uh, when people have access to information and are hoarding it, I think that sometimes they like to hide behind modesty of, you know, oh, yes, well, I do quite well. <laughs> you know, something like <laughs> yeah. that. Well, it's like, that's not helpful to people who sure. are actually trying to come up. Um, well, yeah. What's helpful is exactly. for people to know what's real. You're right. And, and yes. And if you're like someone who is an aspiring coach or author or whatever, it's important to know that like, yeah, that having a book allows you to charge more and charging more can look like $25,000 to speak, which is really incredible. Um, and, and it's interesting too, you, you know, you just said it before, like, it's a good thing all your eggs weren't in the speaking basket because one pandemic would have taken out like an entire year's salary, right, for you. So so you still had like this backup stuff, like you could coach online, you could consult, or you can be writing books from the comfort of your home, right, without without having that uh, that speaking income still. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I certainly, of course, did not imagine that there was going to be a pandemic. Sure. <laughs> but I did imagine much more prosaic things happening. Um you know, I, I try to be conscious of risk mitigation strategies. And so I thought, you know, certainly I just might get sick of all this traveling. That was possible. Uh, I thought it was also possible, you know, God forbid that I might get sick. You know, you have yeah. friends that have illnesses or things that crop up and speaking while lucrative has the disadvantage that it is a hundred percent dependent on you being there to yep. deliver the service. Yep. And so I knew that that was a risk and I wanted to try to guard against it by f sort of fleshing out the rest of my portfolio of activities. I love that. Um, and, and so can you share real quick, like where, where it is that you're speaking in October, your first speaking gig again? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, God willing, if it, uh, goes forward, um, I'll be speaking for a company called Constellation Research and, uh, they're going to be having a conference in California. Cool. So I'm looking forward to that. This is someone you've worked with before, I'm guessing, or that they've got um, you back. I again. actually have not worked with, with them before. Oh. Um, but I, Ray Wong, who is, um, who's a, a senior leader there is a, a great guy that I've known through sort of on, I guess you could say like online tech circles for a while. Yep. So yeah, yep. the, the event is called constellations connected enterprise and they are hopefully at the end of October planning to have an event at half moon Bay in California, which is probably a place you're familiar with. I'm guessing. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, for those listening who don't know, I am from Santa Barbara, California. Half Moon Bay, I think, is like Central California, right? Or yeah, it's it's north so. of Santa Barbara, but yeah. uh, you know, still still on that gorgeous stretch of coast. Yeah, it's lovely up there. Um, so, oh gosh, I have so many questions for you now. Um, I guess here's a question that I think maybe listeners might want to know: is how do you just decide that you're worth $25,000 to get on stage somewhere without like feeling massively sort of, you know, that imposter syndrome, or I don't know, how do you, how do you like end up charging 10,000 and be like, I could charge more? 
is it is it just like what's the industry standard is or you know what is it that gets you to that like upper upper echelon dory because i think for myself and a lot of people we find we get stuck around like big numbers sometimes yeah absolutely i think a lot of it certainly is looking around contextually because yeah i mean if you ask straight up or down like oh is this person worth $25,000 an hour like it sounds kind of ridiculous when you think about <laughs> yeah. what you pay yes. you know like a housekeeper or you know uh, yeah. somebody who's doing a regular job but uh in terms of the overall context for an event what what is happening um they are bringing together, you know, if it's a company, they're bringing together their employees. If it is an association or mm-hmm. something like that, you know, they're they're bringing together members or, you know, maybe it, it's clients, whoever it is. But usually these are large groups of people mm-hmm. and they are really wanting it to be an impactful event, obviously. And you think about, you know, let's let's assume for the sake of argument that there's 500 people who are attending. Well, if it's a company, that company is paying to fly in every single one of those people. They are paying the event uh, venue. You know, they're Mm. they're paying the hotel. They're paying, you know, the rental. They're paying for the coffee breaks and the food and, you know, all, all of these things. And it is not uncommon for these to cost hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars, depending on how high end it is and depending how many people are attending. And so at a certain point, contextually, it becomes sort of embarrassing if (laughs) there's an event where theoretically the keynote speaker is supposed to be this this key, you know, this key part of the event, sure, right? Sure. They're, they're supposed to be imparting knowledge or inspiring people or, mm-hmm. you know, passing on useful information. This is supposed to be not an afterthought. This is supposed to be something that is really legitimately important. And yeah. if you are paying more for the Starbucks break than you're paying for the keynoter, there's something wrong with that. Mm. And so, in term, so like like just about anything in life. I mean, is a yep. baseball player worth fifty million dollars? I mean, no, that's pathetic. Like, who cares? But um, <laughs> sorry to all the baseball players uh, listening here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But the reason that they in the marketplace are worth fifty million dollars is that it, you know, it's 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 not like oh my hourly rate is a million dollars. It's sure. that they are able to help the team command billion dollar broadcast revenues. Yep. And so because of the scale and the scope of what they're able to do, proportionally it is appropriate. And so similarly, you know, the question we we're going back to this before, you know, this is all about how do you achieve scale? How do you achieve impact? Mm. If you are if you are reaching a lot of people and especially if those are high uh high-end people who themselves in turn have a lot of impact. Uh, then it actually becomes very appropriate to be commanding high fees. And I, I think thinking of it in that way is is very powerful. And also, of course, you know, getting to know peers in the industry so you can see what other people are charging because, you know, there's there's nothing that will make you feel more confident in your fees than looking around and seeing that somebody that's actually not as good as you is charging more. Well, in that case, it's like, oh, well, geez. (laughs) 
that's funny. So, so my, my takeaway from what you're saying actually is, um, you're thinking not necessarily in terms of dollars, but in terms of like percentage of the overall budget, you know, like, like I, that's, that's how that's translating to me a little bit. And it makes sense that you wouldn't be like, like 0.05% of their overall budget. If you are like a main stage speaker and you're that you're capping off the entire uh, conference, you, you're, it would make more sense if you were like 5% or 10% of the overall budget or whatever. Um, yeah, I mean, right. I'm, I, you know, I, I don't necessarily have a particular percentage in mind. I know there's say, not a formula, but, but, but yeah, yeah, but, but certainly it, it is. I mean, in a rough sense, thinking about it's, it's a question of what is the value that you are providing proportionate mm. to the, the overall expenditure. So, you know, I've written about. Um, in fact, for, if people are interested, I, I've done an article for the Harvard Business Review specifically about what do you charge for speaking fees? And folks can Google that mm. and get that for free. Um, but you know, one key point is to really understand what is the size of the audience? Who are the audience? What's their rank? What's their seniority? What's the context? Because if, if you're brought in to speak for you know, s- some completely wealthy hedge fund, you might say, oh, they have so much money. They're just rolling in money. Well, sure. you know, that's true. But if what they bring you in is for like a, you know, a brown bag lunch and learn for their mm-hmm. interns, you know, they're not spending a lot of money on that. They probably, the person who is bringing you in, they're like the volunteer coordinator or, you know, whatever. Got it. Yeah, they, yeah, yeah. They don't have money to pay you. So it's, so it's actually true. I mean, you can decide if you want to do it or not, but if they say, well, Phil, we've got 500 bucks, they probably have 500 bucks. Meanwhile, if the same hedge fund is saying, oh, hey, Phil, we want you to come out to Aspen and give a keynote for our 250 mm-hmm. top clients. And they say, well, we have 500 bucks. They are lying through their teeth. <laughs> that is just not true. Sure. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's really great. Contextual. Yeah. And value related to the project. I love it. Man, this is juicy. I, I really appreciate you uh, sharing your insight with these things. It's um, it's really smart and, and I appreciate it. And it takes people out of, I think, I think maybe a trap that a lot of young or starting freelancers get into is like just charging an hourly rate. And, and that has to be limiting at a certain point, right? Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, hourly rates are easy in the beginning for sure mm-hmm. because uh because you can you can track them and and you you don't have to think about it it's like well you know i charge i charge 50 bucks and so i spent four hours so yep. therefore i know to, to bill you for 200 dollars um and that's simple but in the long term it's actually not that effective because you you know as we quickly discover we only have so many hours in the day you yep. do hit a limit and also when things are framed in terms of hourly, th- there's there's only so much willingness. I mean, the the legal profession, for instance, has you know more and more people, including my lawyer, now charge flat fees for mm. projects. But historically, it has always been hourly. But even the top lawyers really can't get away in the marketplace with more than a thousand dollars an hour. Just people won't pay it. Yeah. Whereas if you package things in different ways or if you're thoughtful about you know what is it that the client really wants more than my time you know maybe what they want is just the security the mental security of knowing that 
it's going to be done right and they don't have to worry about it. Like, what's that worth? Well, it's worth probably more than $50 an hour. Yep. And you've escaped the confines of, uh, yeah, of just the hourly rate. That's beautiful. Yep. I agree. thousand percent. Read Dory's (laughs) books. Everything is in there. She's great. (laughs) Um, This is great. And so um, I guess this leads me to another question then. Uh, Do you think anybody could be freelance? Kind of a provocative question, but yeah. (laughs) I mean, I think think for sure anybody could. Um, The key determinant is just somebody's willingness to be proactive, which not everybody is. So, I mean, could anybody? Yes. Will everybody? No, certainly not. Because there are a lot of people that based on their personality or based on just the level of agency that they have in life, Mm -hmm. feel like what is most appropriate somehow is for them to sit back and be told what to do. Or they like to say, well, you know, I have a job and this is my job and this is what I do. And these are the boundaries and I don't do things that are not my job. And if that's the attitude that you have, you're probably going to be a pretty terrible freelancer because the essence of being a freelancer is having to be a creative problem solver and a willingness to roll up your sleeves and do all the things, all the different things. And if you don't know how to do something, you figure it out, you learn Um, because you can never get away with saying, well, that's not my problem. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Um, yeah, it's based on, I, I, I agree. I I think personality has a lot to do with it. If you're generally anxious or worried about things, being freelance can be incredibly difficult. I think, um, there has to be like a a bit of like a, a dash of, sort of self-assuredness, belief, um, probably like higher risk tolerance than most people. And um, yeah, a little confidence and sometimes extroversion goes a long way. Although not a, not all freelancers, as we know, are extroverts, obviously. Um, sure. I'll also say that, you know, one of the things that I like to emphasize as well is that often in the popular narrative, entrepreneurship yeah. is about a willingness to take risks. But actually, at a fundamental level, I sort of disagree in the Ooh, sense okay, that okay. I I have never been in a riskier position than when I had a day job. Now, mind you, I didn't think of it that way. But sure. in, in truth, that was actually the case. And so I actually think that for many entrepreneurs or you know for many people who identify as freelancers what they understand that other people don't is that security you know the kind of security that is granted by someone else is an illusion mm-hmm. and we need to make our own security and when we do that when we actually do the work to create our own security that becomes powerful and um almost unbreakable mm. because you know, ultimately it's about ha- having legs on your table, right? You got one leg on your table, it gets chopped down, you are screwed. <laughs> but if you have a table and it has six legs and, you know, which I think of as clients or yep. income streams or whatever yep. it is, one of them gets knocked over. I mean, who cares? The table is barely tilting because you have built up so much security through your other means. Yeah. That's That's the security you earn, not the kind of wishful thinking security that so many people have. Ah, oh, you're so great, Dory. That's why I love talking to you. 
Um, I'm also just trying to imagine what the shape of this table is. It has six legs now. <laughs> yeah, and I was trying yeah. to imagine if there was any shape that would uh, start tilting with uh, minus one leg, but I think it doesn't matter. It could be square, rectangular, triangular, six legs, minus one still works great. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's true. Um, that's a great analogy. So, so do you, okay, let's talk a little bit about, uh, well, first of all, do, do you even consider yourself freelance? I have a feeling you don't, and that's okay, but I'm curious what you think about the word. <laughs> yeah, I think, well, I think freelance is a, is a very good and, um, and respectable word. Certainly when I got laid off from my job as a journalist years ago, mm. uh, what I turned to very explicitly was freelance writing. Yeah. And I thought of myself as a freelancer during that time. I, the way that I distinguish the words in my own mind, which uh -huh. I think is probably different than how other people might, is that to me, freelancing sort of implies that um, it's, I almost think of it as kind of like a white collar version of gig work mm -hmm. where it's like, you know, I do this and then I do that. And then I do this. Whereas a number of years ago, once I decided to start my own business, I no longer really thought of myself as a freelancer because it wasn't so much getting gigs from different places. I really began to think of it as more like, no, I have a business mm. and I have clients that yeah. I cultivate. And so yeah, uh, for, for me, that was kind of a perceptual shift, although I realized that, that other people may think of it in a slightly different fashion. Sure. And you are, <clears throat> yeah, that makes sense. And, and, cause, and, and you can create your own clients almost out of, out of your resources if you want. Like you have a mailing list and you can, you can cultivate that. You don't need people to like look you up and ask you for things you can almost like create money if you want which is maybe yeah. a little different than freelance life yeah um yeah, yeah although you, you, actually oh, yeah. to one one note that i'll make is that i have a new book that's coming out in september it's called the long game how to be mm -hmm. a long-term thinker in a short-term world and one of the people that i profile in the book I think I think actually probably would consider herself a freelancer. Her name is Kara Catruzula, mm -hmm. and she lives in New York. And it's interesting. She is a writer, an editor. And one of the ways that she has actually, to great effect, been able to take control over her career is that four years ago now, she started a daily newsletter. Now, it's mm. you know, quite a bit of work, as you can imagine. It's not long. It's maybe two paragraphs. But she does a daily newsletter every weekday. And originally, this newsletter started with like 30 people on it. You know, just like literally the people sure. that would come to her house parties. But it's now grown. It's multiple thousands of people. But a a lot of the subscribers, because these are the people she knew, were fellow journalists, fellow editors, the people who would hire her. And she said that it has become an incredible biz dev tool for mm. her because she writes about the things that she's interested in. She muses on certain topics. If she's written an article that's been published somewhere, she shares it. And so yeah. therefore, the editor's Number one, she's always in touch with her with the people that can hire yeah, her. Very top Number of two, mind, yeah. <laughs> exactly. She they have a great idea of the types of stories that she's interested in and is capable of writing mm. about, and in fact, it actually led to a book contract for her uh, because one of her subscribers, this was someone she didn't even know, uh, is a book editor, 
And the woman reached out to her unbidden and said, hey, Kara, we were having this editorial meeting and someone said, oh, we should have a book about, um, you know, creative activity and how do you, um, you know, how do you sort of get off your duff and do these creative projects? And she, and so the editor said, you know, I started thinking, gosh, that's what Kara talks about in her newsletter all the time. And then she said, wait, I could just have Kara write the book. And that is how Kara got her contract. I love this. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. So many lessons in there. Um, that's really, that's, that's a great story. And, and to me, like what, what I think, you know, t- tangible, um, takeaways from that particular story is like, uh, one, she gave a lot without asking and she did it very consistently without stopping. This is like all the, you know, every TikTok star understands this concept and every Instagram influencer understands that if you post two to three times a day for like two years straight, like you will amass a massive following, right? And um, and who knows where it goes, but eventually it goes. It, like money shows up, and and that's really interesting to me too. That like if you just do one thing really well consistently, and provide some value, you know, for free, um, doesn't always have to be for free or whatever. But but yeah, that that people take note, and, uh, totally. and I think it opens up a lot of doors. I find that really fascinating. Hmm. Yeah, I love that. Cool. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, you're probably more of a solo entrepreneur, just an entrepreneur in general, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's still great though, because everything you're talking about applies to freelancers, I think. And, and like the ability to sort of, um, what I, you know, what I would call like design your life or, or live life on your own terms. And, um, and which leads me to another question, like how, well, when I think of living an epic freelance life or an epic solopreneur life, like I think of freedom and being able to do things that I want. Is there any, um, what are some interesting ways that you exercise your freedom in your life? Uh, oh, I think I know yeah. one that you shared recently, but yeah, what, what comes to mind when I ask that question? Well, it's it's a great question to ask, Phil, because I think oftentimes there's sort of this trade-off that happens because I remember in those moments when I had first been laid off from my job at a newspaper and I was establishing myself as a freelance writer. And even though I had theoretically plenty of time suddenly because I was unemployed, I didn't really use any of it in a relaxing way because I was in such a panic mode about, mm. oh my God, I've got to get assignments. I've got to work. I've got to, I've got to pitch. And so I wasn't taking advantage of that at all. And then, you know, once things sort of stabilize for people and and you know thankfully they get more successful they get an opposite kind of problem and so one thing that i actually uh, talk about again in my in my book the long game my forthcoming book is there's a woman named sam horn who is a very successful author and consultant and she tells a story about how she was just completely burned out she had been doing a presentation in california she lived on the east coast and she was driving to the airport to get on a red-eye flight and she was talking to her son her adult son and he just you know he he heard something in her voice he's like mom what is wrong and she just said oh i'm so tired i I just i don't even know if i can get on this flight Mm. and he said you know mom there's something i don't understand about you you theoretically have the ability to do anything you want. You have a great business. It's successful. You make plenty of money. You could, you could make choices 
but you're not making them. All you're doing is pushing yourself to work harder and harder. And you're acting like that's how it has to be. And so he just sort of intervened and he said, skip the flight, just skip it. And he booked a hotel room for her for the next two nights so she could just take extra time uh, where she was, which was actually beautiful. She was in Laguna Beach, California, and she just took two days to sort of stop and decompress. And it really reoriented her and it helped her realize, whoa, I'm... I have the ability to make choices and yet I am not making them. Mm-hmm. So I think it's really important for all of us to remember. Um, so I know sometimes I'm driving myself um, to a really ridiculous extent, but there's there's things that I do. I mean, I made a commitment, for instance, uh, during the summer, this past summer, to take a ping pong lesson every week. And you and I have, uh, yeah. have now played several times, but that's a cool thing, you know, just for me that I wanted to learn. Yeah. Um, I'm taking a trip to Dubai coming up, which I'm very excited about. It'll be my first time traveling post pandemic. So that's yeah. going to be pretty cool. Um, that That's fantastic. And d- didn't you decide to not work on Fridays? Did, did I, I feel like I read this or you shared this with me. Yeah, that's also true. That's also true, Phil. Thank you. Yeah, I actually just published recently an article in Fast Company about this. About I read. What I that's what I read. Yeah, yeah, that was taking awesome. Fridays off. That's amazing. Yeah. I, I think that that to me is like a hundred percent in in sort of like the values of living an epic freelance life or living you know living life on your own terms. Is you you made taking off Fridays work, and it wasn't necessarily easy at first, right? You had to like work out a few things. And it felt a little scary or whatever, but but now it's probably like a piece of cake. You just have three day weekends all the time. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, you know, in fact, the ping pong lessons I usually schedule them on Fridays as yeah. part of this. I, um, I I think part of where we get slippage sometimes as freelancers or as entrepreneurs mm-hmm. is that sometimes we don't have a very good plan for how we will use free time. And so we we just sort of like revert to working because we don't know what else to do. Sure. Um, so you have to think about it. So for me, I, I try to take Fridays as, you know, I say in air quotes, kind of like a self-care day where it's, you know, I, I fill it with things that I enjoy. So I'll do a ping pong lesson in the afternoon. Uh, yeah. once a month I'll, t- I'll take Friday mornings and I'll go get a haircut. Then if I have to have a doctor's appointment or like a physical therapy appointment, I'll mm-hmm. usually schedule those on Friday. So, you know, it's, it's things that are either fun or necessary, but they're not work and yeah. they're things that I'm glad that I'm doing. I have a, so I am working, you know, on a book of the same title, How to Live an Epic Freelance Life. And one of my chapters, I really want to be called um, Midday, Midweek Movies. Because yes. there's something so satisfying about like going and watching a movie at like maybe two o'clock on a Tuesday afternoon when when I know that like millions of other people are working a nine to five. And it just feels like such a like a direct um, exercise of freedom for me that it just, it, I love that thought. And so taking Fridays off is amazing. It's, it's really beautiful that you worked that into your life. Yeah. Thank you. Absolutely. I mean, it, this is sort of a less sexy version of going to the movies in the middle of the afternoon. <laughs> but, uh, but you know, one, one thing that I realized when I started working for myself 
was going grocery shopping had suddenly become so much better because uh, you know like like everybody else when i had a day job I, you know i was like the sad sack that would be trying to do it on you know friday night or something after work and it's just everything took longer everything was less pleasant because it was it was crowded and you know they might have run out of something yeah. or, you know it's like oh it's hard to get a parking space uh, it's or, so much better shopping in the middle of the day yeah yeah it's just it's just you you zip in you zip out you do what you need and you've you've not just bought yourself extra time you've bought yourself mental peace because you're not having to like yeah claw your way against the rest of humanity which by the way when you go to movies in the middle of a weekday it's incredibly empty <laughs> if you love having like a movie theater to yourself that is the best way to watch a movie for sure yeah co um, covid friendly man yeah that's funny oh yeah i know i guess we're in covid era. i did see my very first movie uh in a year uh last wednesday actually so oh, so they, exciting. They, they opened up like indie theaters around New York or, you know, theaters were allowed to have guests at like 25 percent capacity and all this stuff. But I, I went on a Wednesday night and it was raining. It was just me and one other person in the entire theater. It was great. That's incredible. It felt good to be back in there. Um, OK, uh, let's we'll we'll kind of like wind this down with a couple of last questions um, that are kind of like light questions, I would call them. What what is an interesting idea that that you would love to like? I think as an entrepreneur and as freelancers, we're always thinking of like cool ways to make money or like ideas that would be awesome if only we had the time, energy, or resources. So, is there anything that you've been sitting on that you could like share with the world that you're not worried that you know that someone else could could steal or whatever? Um, do you know what I'm saying? Like, is there anything that you've been like? I wish I wish I could do this if I had the time or energy. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, you know, what I what I actually wish, and this is not really a, a prime moneymaker exactly, but sure. um, but something that I was very keen on, I guess, especially about five years ago in 2016, that was really my big push. Mm. But I took uh several several months in a row, several several iterations of stand-up comedy classes. Oh and yeah. I loved doing that. That was really fantastic. The part that was wearying was in order to actually practice your craft of stand-up, there's, um, there's really only a few ways that you can do it. One is taking a class, um, which, you know, is effective in some ways. But in terms of practicing on stage, you what's most typical is so-called bringer shows where you, in order to get stage time you are required to bring 10 people 10 yeah. friends which is incredibly hard it's, it's very hard yes yeah. <laughs> and you know meanwhile they're paying like a 25 dollar ticket there's a two drink minimum so it's like you're hitting up all your friends and you're like hey will hey, you drop bucks. 75 bucks yeah, to yeah, like exactly. come see me so they'll do it once, but like, you know, that's, that's hard after yeah, a while. Yeah, that's a hard, that's a grind of an industry for sure. Um, yeah. So if it, if it was something that I could practice more easily, I would, I would have stayed with it, but, but just the logistics around it were so punishing. I mean, I, you know, I'm a busy person. I have a business. I just don't have a lot of time to dick around trying to coordinate friends sure, to sure. go. That's so funny. Well, I got to see Dory do some stand-up at one of her book releases uh, a few years ago, and it was awesome. <laughs> that was really fun. Thank you, Phil. Yeah, that was an easy way to get a bunch of people into a room without having to make them pay. <laughs> yeah, of course, you know, you, you did have to write a book, but... <laughs> yeah, I, I guess, yeah, yeah, you just write a book first, get it published, 
um, do all of that. And then you get a free stand up show. It's easy. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's so, so much better than the Brigger show. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Um, well, okay. For, for those listening, you know, if any of you are like even more curious about Dory, there were so many things we did not touch upon, like how Dory is writing a musical right now, or how she's investing in Broadway shows, or how she like, there's so many different facets to your life, Dory, that we like did not even come close to touching on. Dory's done thousands of podcast interviews, I feel like, and uh, has great ideas. She writes, she has an amazing newsletter. And um, she's constantly on LinkedIn and all over the place. So it's really fun. If, if you want more, it's out there in the world. Um, maybe leave us with one interesting thing, Dory, that you've consumed recently, like like a book, a podcast, a movie, a TV show, an article, anything that's sort of like um, struck your fancy in the past month or so or, or that you feel like the world should know about. Oh, that's nice. Thanks, Phil. And I'll also mention, because obviously sure. everybody who's listening to this is interested in entrepreneurship and building freelance income. So I do have a free resource, which is my 88-question entrepreneurial you self-assessment, which, which helps you think through ways to create multiple revenue streams in your own business. And so for, for folks who are interested in that, you can get it for free at doryclark.com slash entrepreneur. Cool. That's great. And I'll try to make sure that that's in the show notes as well. Doryclarks.com yeah, slash entrepreneur. Exactly. And so to answer your question, a cool thing that never would have necessarily crossed my transom otherwise, but I've, uh, as you know, I've been in touch with a... Uh, with uh, you know, po- a possible possible overseas romance. We'll see. <laughs> yes. We'll see how it shakes out. But anyway, um, she suggested to me a show that I had not heard of, but uh, have now watched, and it's it's quite interesting. It is a th- three a three season arc, and okay. they each have a slightly different name. It's Deutschland eighty three, Deutschland eighty six, and Deutschland eighty nine, and it is a basically kind of a kind of like a spy show almost about an East German guy who is unwillingly forced into becoming an East German spy. And he's sent over into West Germany to try to infiltrate a NATO base and uh, has to report back. And so it's kind of about his evolution at these critical points during the last years of the cold war and of course it ends with deutschland 89 when the wall comes down so it's sort of tracking him in his fate about you know somebody who's a very unwilling spy but nonetheless has become strategically valuable because they trained him and he developed such skills that they feel like they can't let him go that's so weird i've never ever heard of this but uh what a great recommendation it looks like the first uh iteration of that show is available on hulu i can see yeah yeah you can yeah. get it on hulu cool All three seasons deutschland 83 86 89 thanks that's really interesting um i love that so thank you for your time dory i know it's precious and i really really appreciate you sharing insights with with uh, our audience um i adore you i can't wait to play ping pong again and maybe we'll do this again in a couple of years as your life grows and changes <laughs> I love it, Phil. Thank you so much. Great to be here. Bye.